You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're talking to the queen of alternatives. That's right, we're talking with Shana Sizzle, who is founder and CEO at Bondrian Capital Management. Shana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And we got to start with the nickname. I mean, come on, it's for our show, the Alternative Investment Podcast. We have to start with the nickname. How did you get the nickname, the queen of alternatives, the queen of alts? So I was on ETF Think Tank's happy hour show that they do on Thursdays at 5 p.m. with the folks over at Title, Cynthia Nixon, Michael Venuto, and so on. And um, they were asking me about the uh, the origins of the name Bondrian Capital Management. So Bondrian means queen in Gaelic. My mom is from Ireland. Uh, she was born in Killarney. And so... I am the least creative person in the world. And I did pageants when I was younger. Most people who know me kind of know that story. Uh, so I was thinking queen, tiara, crown. And every time I would put that into Google, there was one already. So I thought, well, maybe I can put it into a translator and maybe there's a word in a different language that's cool that will work. And lo and behold, the Gaelic word for queen is Bonrian. So that's how we became Bonding and Capital Management. And then Cynthia Murphy from ETF Think Tank said, well, that makes total sense because you're the queen of alternatives. And alas, my nickname was born. So uh, Cynthia is kind of the shack to my Paul Pierce, if you will. I love it. You know, there are worse things in the world to be than the queen of alternatives. I'll tell you that much. It's interesting, though, like we launched this program, the Alternative Investment Podcast, and the original vision was we were going to cover illiquid alternatives, right? Mm -hmm. Private equity, venture capital, private real estate. But my background uh, in finance was in ETFs. It was kind of what the first businesses that I helped build that I later sold was ETF database. And we covered, you know, all we covered was ETFs. So we went from like this liquid exchange traded world to now this illiquid world of alts. And then I don't know, a year into hosting this show, I kind of realized, you know, there's all these great liquid alts. There's intermittent liquidity products. It's funny because I thought we were going to be at this other extreme. And now, uh, I don't know if it's just in my mind or with the show, it feels like it's all kind of blending together again. And and with your practice and your firm, it seems like you have that same mindset, You know, whether illiquid alternatives, ETFs, anywhere in between, it's like, it doesn't matter. We're, we're trying to you know help investors meet their goals. That's what matters. Um, do you see these things kind of blending together over time? Absolutely. And it, it's funny. So I became involved in the world of alternatives in 2007. So my first job working in the hedge fund space was as a junior um, analyst at Russell Investments Hedge Fund to Fund. And so that was sort of my first experience right in the financial crisis. You know, if you're talking like, Canaries in the coal mine. That's sort of how I learned, uh, yeah. you know, earned my stripes, if you will, about alternatives. And it could have ruined me and made me never want to be involved in alts again since it blew up our fund. But it actually had the opposite effect. And shortly thereafter, I joined an RAA and I helped build their alternatives platform. And one of the key reasons that was successful is because 
right around 2007, a little history lesson here, is when the SEC relaxed some of the regulatory restrictions on 40 Act products, allowing for the proliferation of alternative product and hedge fund-like offerings. Now, that's not to say those things didn't exist before. They just were not common. They required some regulatory exceptions, and they were really complicated to do. So it it wasn't that you couldn't find a long short mutual fund. It's that there were probably like three on the market, mm-hmm. and uh, and they, you know, weren't well known. They didn't really gather assets, uh, but they didn't not exist. It was just n- not until '07 did they have the proliferation because of the regulatory changes. Right. So everybody remembers that is that's when all the one thirty thirty and one twenty twenty funds kind of came to be, and that's because the restriction allowed for thirty percent um, leverage on the NAV. And that's why it's one thirty thirty, um, and so that actually opened the door for product offerings in the space. Uh, it started with mutual funds. Please excuse my cat; she keeps stepping on my keyboard. I have a cat. no. It, it makes for good TV. It uh, for yes, good. it does. <laughs> it's all she's good. She's awfully cute. She's mischievous, but I she's mean, cute. we're on YouTube. Like, how much better can it get than having a cat in the video for and, YouTube? Not just right? a cat, like the cutest kitten ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, so. You know, it started with mutual funds. And then as ETFs kind of grew in popularity, you started to see alternative ETFs. Index IQ uh, was one of the first to kind of introduce an entire suite of ETFs that were focused on trying to replicate hedge fund uh, returns. Yeah. And you had Alpha Simplex come into the mix and others have grown from that. AGF IQ is another big one that kind of focuses on the space. Uh, but Index IQ was the first. And I remember that because I went to their roadshow when they were getting ready to do those products. Uh, and and so you started to see the ETFs. And then later on, uh, you saw some regulatory uh, opportunity for integral funds uh, that happened after the, um, um, what was it, third... Third Avenue blow up uh, mm-hmm. many years ago, where all of a sudden the SEC and the regulators saw maybe we should have something that doesn't require daily liquidity. And so interval funds came to be kind of a thing. Yep. Um, and so now there actually are substantial offerings in ETFs, interval funds, mutual funds that are hedge fund and hedge fund like and provide access to areas that we never had before. And the reason no one noticed is because when the market goes straight up and equities are killing it, nobody cares. Right. But in the last year or so, people have really taken notice of the importance of alternatives because a lot of these alternative products have outperformed. And, um, you know, the death of the 6040, I like to call it the evolution of the 6040 has been a huge topic now for years. Yeah. Um, and more and more people are starting to realize that this is an important diversification opportunity. And now we actually have track records going over 10 years that people can use to sort of back test and see, like even during the strongest bull market we've seen in decades, if you had alternatives in your portfolio, you actually didn't underperform. Um, per se, if you're looking at it versus a traditional 60-40, it actually offered great diversification. And then when everything fell apart in 2020 and, and 2022, you actually uh, got quite a bit of alpha from having that exposure. So our focus is to be able to help advisors scale that and help them kind of, if the one thing that hasn't caught up with all of this product offering is um categorization and proper education so while there's plenty of product out there finding it and understanding where it fits in a portfolio is a completely different battle and that's where we step in and help advisors 
it's funny you mentioned the categorization thing. It's literally like a daily battle for me. I mean, number one, I'm getting pitched with podcast guests and I'm constantly going, well, sometimes I'm going, is this even an alternative investment? Mm-hmm. But I've, I've kind of learned, you know, if, if the market, if the consensus considers it an alternative investment, I'm like, well, then it's an alternative investment, right? I mean, for me, it's almost to the point, if it's not a long only mm-hmm. stock or stock fund, if it's not a long only bond or bond fund, you know, I'm almost going to say it's an alt or if someone tells me it's an alt, I'm not going to argue, right? Yeah, but you look at things like night shares, which I, I believe you had them recently on the show. Yeah. Um, night shares would not be categorized by, you know, Morningstar or Lipper as a alt because it's not long short. But it's very well. There, that, that's my point. You know, Morningstar, yep. Lipper. They're not my. Uh, they're not exactly. You know, <laughs> they're the all... average. The average advisor does rely on those resources to help mm-hmm. them. And if you're trying to build a portfolio, yeah. Where number one, if you're looking in the private space, there's a problem with finding it because you know these are Reg D exempt, and so they can't market themselves. And so you have to be on access portals to find these managers. You're not an institution. You're not necessarily going to cap intro events. So where do you find them? You have to go to an ICAP or a case. And even there, it's somewhat limited. It still doesn't do the work you need to understand where it fits in, right? It's really just about, okay, I want private equity. This seems like good. Um, And then when you're talking about like the interval funds, the mutual funds and the ETFs, good luck trying to figure out, you know, what's what, because I always use this as an example, global macro, for example, there is a macro category by Morningstar. Absolutely. Has clearly has macro funds in there. You will also find macro funds in tactical allocation, global allocation. So uh, finding the right products, understanding where they fit in a portfolio, and just kind of sifting through to figure it out is a problem. And a lot of alternative asset totally. managers don't have tons of assets because nobody really knows how they fit in. And so they struggle to get the word out as well because, you know, they're not going out and being a headline sponsor at Inside ETFs. Um, you know, it's hard. Well, by the way, though, uh, Shana, that's helped my show, I think, because one of the things we're trying to do on the show is get the word out and explain mm-hmm. some of this stuff and do it in a more um, in-depth format. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm, I'm not CNBC. I'm not trying to have like a three-minute clip like, quick, you know, explain every intricacy of your strategy. You have 90 seconds, go, you know, yep. it, it just, sometimes it takes some time, but here's an interesting thing to me is, you know, the reality is in the, the world of alternatives, there are so many, you know, asset classes, even within there, you know, you have private mm-hmm. equity, you have venture capital, you have real estate, just real estate in itself is huge, can be mm-hmm. But there's, there's, there's the idiosyncrasies beneath everything, right? It, it, exactly. But what I would say is this, you know, talking about advisors and their clients, I, I want to start with this and you, you can rebut this, you know, if you mm-hmm. feel differently, but I'm all about, you know, portfolio models and seeing we, we want a, a diversified portfolio that the drawdowns are limited, less volatility. And that also, of course, generates alpha or has higher returns for the long run. But mm-hmm. if an advisor doesn't understand an asset class or product, it should not be in that portfolio period. Because if you don't even understand it, how can you manage it? How can you communicate it to the client? How can you answer? It's just, I almost would rather have a 60-40 portfolio for an advisor Mm -hmm. if they really don't 
understand or want to under, you know, they don't have the time to understand these other asset classes. So is it like, is it okay, you know, for advisors to say every advisor is going to be a little different. If there's an asset class they're not comfortable with, they don't recommend it, period, the end, that's okay. I agree that that is true, but that doesn't, that's not an excuse. I'm just not going to do it because I don't understand it. That's actually why I started Bonrian is I think there are a lot of advisors that don't understand it, have stayed away from it for that very reason, mm-hmm. but also understand there's some value here and would like to be more educated and would like to be able to offer their clients these products and be able to scale it, but they need a partner to help them. And that's why we exist. So we so use are you are, when you when you mention advisors, are you mainly talking about like independent RIAs and those I, sorts of? I am uh, not even just independent RIAs, but I would say any kind of advisor that caters to what I would call the mass affluent, which is quite frankly the bulk of financial advisors. We're not talking about family offices or private banks. Those folks have uh, the you know alternatives as part of their standard offerings. Um, I'm talking about you know. The stand, uh, you know, the average independent RAA who has 100 million to 500 million in assets under management at their firm, who is catering to a, you know, small business owners, lawyers, doctors, and um, understands that this is probably something they should be able to offer. Um, but the advisors that fall into that category tend to use, as you say, models and TAMPs. They like to have their focus is on the relationship, on the planning, on helping people reach their goals. They're not really, you know, portfolio managers, nor do they want to be. That's not what they love. Nor should they be. I exactly. Mean, so they, not- they're using TAMPs and they're using, you know, if they're with a broker dealer, they're probably using RAP programs um, because it allows them to focus on what they want to focus on and what they're so, really sorry, Shana. I'm sorry to interrupt for our non advice because we have a lot of like family offices or, mm-hmm. or just high net worth investors who are independent, self-directed. What's mm-hmm. a TAMP for an individual investor? Could you explain sure. something? Because I know these are more advisor terms. No problem. So that's a turnkey asset management program. Mm-hmm. And is it, I can't remember if it's program or platform. It, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah. So I've worked for Orion Advisor Solutions prior to, um, becoming a CIO at an RIA aggregator. And I was the director of investment due diligence. TAMPs are almost like wrap programs for independent advisors. Mm-hmm. So they are programs that include models and recommendations to help advisors build portfolios. There's a layer of fiduciary responsibility that the TAMPs take on uh, to help the advisors kind of um use them to help as sort of like a way De- to help deflect, them. You, you almost, are you, so you're almost deflecting that. I, I hate to yes. use that word, but you're kind of offloading the responsibility of. To some extent, I, I, I would yeah. say most good advisors would never say that it completely alleviates their fiduciary responsibility, mm-hmm. but it certainly allows them to say things like, um, you know, those TAMPs typically serve as a fiduciary on their own in their due diligence and their recommendations. And, and could I ask another question about these TAMPs? Yeah. So, yeah, because I mean, I'm not an advisor, right? So that's mm-hmm. kind of my my uh, thing with the show is I'm an LP, I'm an investor, you know, so yeah. I get to ask the dumb questions that probably a lot of our audience is wondering. But so if I'm using this program and it's 
spitting out an asset allocation based on whatever inputs I have. Mm -hmm. Is it recommending asset classes or is it recommending individual security? So is it basically, is it outputting large cap stocks ETF or is it actually uh, outputting, you know, VTI, the actual? It's doing both. It's doing both. They typically will offer like Vanguard models which would be yep. all Vanguard product or Fidelity Malls or State or Street Schwab products, or but whatever. Also yep. Smaller firms, right? Okay. So like Hotchkiss and Wiley might have products on there in the value space. And the TAMP might have their own models where they say, okay, here to your point, you want to have this much in large cap, this much in large value. And here are sort of like our large value offerings. And this is how we rank them. And here's a due diligence reports. Uh, that's generally what TAMPs do. They have typically have recommended lists. They typically um, have full model uh, pro- uh, providers and some that just focus on certain spaces, allowing for flexibility for the advisors that use them to do what I, I, I see. And I mean, so I know we're talking about both illiquid and mm-hmm. liquid alts. So we're talking about ETFs, maybe for the, the mass affluent or mm-hmm. even just the masses and maybe private funds. But this is this is what you were telling me before the call, but I can kind of see it clearly now as I'm thinking about the software, which I don't have in mm-hmm. front of me. But that kind of a portfolio model, it's never going to spit out an allocation to night shares or an no. allocation to a hedge hedge fund no. strategy replication. No, as a matter of fact, most TAMPs don't have alternatives programs. I know Investnet yeah. is um, launching one this spring uh, in conjunction with iCapital and UBS. Most TAMPs will use iCapital or Case as sort of like, oh, you want alts? Here, yeah. here's our partner in that space. Um, and it tends Which is to- fine, by the way. That's for accredited investors. Mm-hmm. That's fine. But I mean, yep. to your point, then when you're talking with uh, my mom or you know your mom or whatever, uh, mom and pop client who may not be an accredited investor- Mm-hmm. How do they get the advantage of that kind of diversification without You wouldn't access? find it. You wouldn't yeah. find it. And and so that's actually what we do. And that's the problem we solve. We use technology to drive. We have our liquid alt models, which are ETFs and mutual funds, interval funds, where it makes sense. We have a white labeled accredited investor solution. And then we have an access platform. So all three of those things are part of our solution for advisors. Um and that is sort of the missing link. You have access platforms, which is credit investor, qualified purchaser, doesn't cost the advisor anything, but also not gaining tons of market share with advisors. You know, KSI Capital, they have great, great platforms. They're very low cost to the advisor, obviously, no cost in many cases. And they offer, you know, basic due diligence, but they don't offer a lot of that educational framework on how it fits in a portfolio. Um, but more importantly, most advisors only have like 20 to 25% of their book of business. And I'm talking the mass affluent, not the family office, private bank, but mm-hmm. only have about 20 to 25% of their book of business that is accredited, even less which are qualified. So if your entire solution is just an access platform, your ability to take much of an allocation from any single advisor is small. And most advisors want a solution they can use with every single client in their book. Because that makes their lives easier because they're looking to scale. They're not having like 10 different large cap value managers to cover value. They pick one and that's the model. That's what they do. And everybody gets a little piece of that. So what we try to do is we actually see value in having both uh, traditional available to anybody kind of model Mm -hmm. and having offerings in the accredited and qualified space. 
because as I, I know, you know, it's just a bigger universe of offerings. And because you don't have to worry about that daily liquidity and the constraints of the 40 act, which, can, which actually constrain the strategies themselves, yeah. you have a much better mousetrap, better way to gain that access and yep. a lot more to choose from. So it's what we try to do is have a, a product that solves for like the accredited investor, a qualified purchaser um, yep. uh, world. And then we create sort of pair pursue in parallel, um, a 40 act model based on the same exposures. So totally. at least for the advisor, the exposures are the same across their book of business, where they know if this client meets these criteria, I'm going to put them in this one. And if they meet, if they don't meet that criteria, we're putting in that one, but they're running similar portfolios. So they're getting similar exposures. It's interesting. So this idea, I mean, I love the idea. First off, I, I love it. But I'm going back to um, 10 years ago when I read Meb Faber's book. So mm -hmm. I, I actually just pulled it up in my web browser here. It's called The Ivy Portfolio, How to Invest Like the Top Endowments and Avoid Bear Markets. And uh, so we, and we had Meb on the show. We talked about the book. It really influenced me. And it's probably one of those things like if I hadn't read this book, I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast today, right? Mm -hmm. But the theme of the book you know, at the really illiquid end of the spectrum, you have the Yale endowment and the Harvard endowment and these, you know, massive endowment funds that are buying timberland and farmland and, you know, allocating a venture capital, super, super illiquid stuff that is generating alpha and then has like no liquidity whatsoever. But there, it doesn't matter because their time horizon is like forever. Forever. Yeah, they yeah. have these huge endowments. And this was, I think it was published around 2010, 2011. But what Meb was pointing out in the book was there's starting to be ETFs that can replicate some of those exposures. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it's still around. It was the, it was a cut CUT. Was that like the timber ETF or whatever? Yeah, so, some of those things don't exist anymore. There yeah. was a boom and bust where if you went in 09, 2010, there were thousands of offerings in the space. And then none of them were able to gather assets for a lot of reasons. Some One, of them, well, some of them did, like Tucrium is still around, yeah. you know. And some they, of them absolutely did. Um, yeah. But I would say the vast majority did not. And so they kind of opened and closed a lot but, of the but, ones. But my, my, my point is though, it's like that idea was around then, mm -hmm. but now we're in, I would almost call it like the third wave or fourth wave of ETF issuance. Mm -hmm. And there's just so many more liquid products out there to actually do this. Cause I think when I read the book, as you kind of pointed out, it was like almost a little bit ahead of its time still. Mm -hmm. And and now I feel like this is actually the best time ever for liquid alts. Would you agree yeah, with that? And it's funny because I actually wrote a white paper before Meb wrote his book. Okay. Uh, all right. No, I'm going to- The gonna, benefits well, of investing in alternatives. <laughs> um, and it's the same premise. Of, yep. I'm not Meb Faber, so it didn't get quite the uh, fanfare. And uh, it wasn't a book. It was just a well, you're the Well, but you're the queen of alternatives. So, I mean, come on. that's You're up there. Come on. If, if you Google it, it does show up. Uh, Schwab and Fidelity did at one time distribute it to their advisors. Um, okay. and, um And it was a, a similar thing. I-, I I kind of came to that realization similar to Meb right around the same time. Um, I was working for an REA. I was building their alternatives platform and I was very much doing what we do at Bondrian, which is I built out the private version and then I built out, you know, a more accessible uh, public, um, publicly accessible offering. Mm -hmm. And um, subsequently, um, I had the chance to see 
um, you know, the people from the Yale endowment, people from the Harvard endowment talking about this concept um, and how, you know, their cash flow needs are minimal, like non-existent, quite frankly, because they have very minimal need to um, pay out anything. So they, they have unlimited time. And that's really different from the average individual who does have some time constraints and liquidity is a problem. Um, and I, I've written some things for the Kaya Association about the alpha that exists in illiquidity, if you're willing to take it. Right. Um, you know, there's there's many different things that just can't mark to market. Um, that doesn't mean that they're completely illiquid. Um, it doesn't mean you couldn't get your money in a month or quarterly. Um, but I do think for some people that's intimidating to lock your money up in that way. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, having the proliferation of products and now interval funds, which allows for you know the average person to be able to take advantage of less liquid product and a wrapper that is accessible is you know the latest and greatest. Um, the only thing I have to say about interval funds is even though interval funds can be done for everybody, a lot of interval funds do actually stick with the accredited investor hurdle uh, for you know business and operational reasons. Um, so not all interval funds are available to everybody. They could be, there's no reason they couldn't be. And, um, you know, well, I think that, that Shana, can be can I, I want to ask you, I'm, I'm going to go, going to go off script and I'm going to okay. ask you about interval funds. Okay. I have this thesis and I haven't really fully worked it out in my mind yet. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, we, we've talked about close end funds, interval funds a little bit on the show lately. Mm hmm and I don't have any problem with interval funds. In fact, I like them, but I think that there may be a problem with interval funds in, in the market in the sense that they almost are like half pregnant in the sense that are they liquid or are they illiquid? And again, there's no mm -hmm. problem if, if it's explained, but it almost seems to me that, you know, if it, let's say there's a firewall monthly or quarterly mm -hmm. firewall and redemptions where you kind of wonder if, are they being sold? as something that's pretty liquid when in fact in reality it may turn out that they're not that liquid i mean it i don't know that just kind of gives me pause and the fact that you work with so many advisors do you see that as a particular problem because with, with interval funds because like with etfs it's like look yeah. they're liquid they're liquid period all the problems that comes along with that and illiquid certain private equity funds they might have a five or ten year hold you know that going mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. The interval funds, I kind of wonder, does everybody totally understand how these work? So I will be honest, I am not a huge fan of interval funds because most of the ones that I think are any good are accredited investor hurdle. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like I can go into a sort of an LP product, a hedge fund product and get similar liquidity and have a greater universe um, without any sort of 40 Act constraint because they still have some constraints under the 40 Act. Um I will say that one of the key things you have to look at with interval funds is the same thing you have to look at when you look at, you know, the private LP funds is um, that hedge funds have is that you need to look at the underlying and does the liquidity make sense? Uh, like, this is such an important thing. You know, people worry so much about like, oh, it's monthly liquid uh, and that fund's quarterly liquid and they're both, you know, asset based lending funds. Like, but seriously, look at the underlying. I understand that that guy might be using monthly because he can market that and maybe he has a larger asset base and he feels comfortable with that. But is it realistically 
How liquid is that portfolio? And that's where due diligence becomes such a huge component. Which so again, that, that's, is, you're, you're talking about what I'm talking about, which is exactly. like, sure, these are liquid when everything goes right. And right, when everyone when understands them, they're very liquid. What, what happens when it goes wrong? And additionally, what happens if the investors... Yeah, and, and that's actually like the key is I don't even care if it is a 40 act product. I still do the level of due diligence I would do if it's a private fund. Mm-hmm. Because even in the 40 act space, like let's look at, you know, two different mutual funds. Um, and, you know, a lot like Index IQ, um, like I said, one of the first that came into the business, their entire suite of product is really replication based, which is really different than like actually implementing a specific strategy. They're looking at a return stream and they're saying, like, how do we replicate the returns based on what we know about that, which is a completely, you know, reasonable way to approach things. But that's really different than, say, AGFIQ, where they have market neutral funds, where they are actually long and short stocks and they are actually market neutral and they're not trying to replicate a return stream. They're actually Hmm. doing the strategy. Um, and both of those things exist on the market and you have to understand those things. These are complex products. You do have to do your due diligence. It's not like picking your favorite large cap fund. You know, um, you do have to do more due diligence, which is why, like I said, Bondrian was founded to help advisors do that. We do the due diligence. We make sure we understand so that we can implement the most appropriate thing for the client. And that is also liquidity. You know, you can have 40 act products. Third Avenue is a perfect example. That was a fixed income fund in the distress space that, as you said, when everything doesn't go right, when everything goes wrong, they actually couldn't be daily liquid. Mm-hmm. And from that experience, interval funds kind of came into existence. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but are we having, the, I mean, are we having the same problem again, though? Like, what do you think no, about you the, still the, have the same situation? Problem. Can we talk about B-Read? Do you have B-Read in any of your model portfolios? No. Or, As a matter okay. of fact, I actively told people a year and a half ago that they shouldn't be investing in B-Read. Tell me more. Why, Nobody why, listened why you... to me. I just <laughs> I, I thought that was a product that had a lot of problems. Did I necessarily see the problems that came to be? No. Uh, but I, I felt like there was a lot of uneducated money in those products because it was Blackstone. And it was on ICAP, it was on Case's platform. So it was easily accessible. So it was attracting a lot of money of people who didn't fully understand the product, which I always think is bad. Uh, you know, one of the things I look at when I invest in anything is who else is in, in the foxhole with me, especially if you're less liquid. Yeah. Uh, Cause that matters. Cause behavioral behavior of different types of investors at times can well, be totally. vastly That's- different. And that's what I mean by being half pregnant. So if if yep. if you if you ultimately if there's a firewall that says, look, at the end of the day, this is not liquid. Mm-hmm. But if the investor investing thinks that it is liquid, even even in a time of turmoil, there's now a mismatch yes. between the structure of the investment and its redemption options versus the expectation of the investors. And as you pointed out, that's a problem. That is a problem, but that's why advisors in the space who do want to be there should rely on, in in the paper I wrote in 2010, uh, Benefits of Investing in Alternatives, like the last sentence of that paper is, if you want to play in the space, you need to work with a professional. Um, Because these are all considerations and you have to be investing with and working with someone who understands these things, because what will happen to an advisor is they'll put money in BRE because it's Blackstone and it's on ICAP and it's on CASE. And 
that's not to say case or I kept did anything wrong. B-read was used by everybody. So like, these are not, I, I think, is it? Um, yeah, it reminds the, me, Shana, it reminds me of the saying in IT, like nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. It kind of feels like, yep. you know, nobody got fired well, for buying B-read. There's a you know? saying in um, a book about um, Paulson. Um, and I can't, it's, it's super old. It was right after the financial crisis on one of the pages and I can see it in my head. Um, and, um, a gentleman from the wall street journal wrote it, Greg, um, names escaping me. Anyways, in the start of one of the headings, it says it's better to be right with the crowd than wrong on your own Mm -hmm. or no better to be wrong with the crowd than right on your own. And essentially saying that like, Paulson won ultimately and made a ton of money, but he did it alone and in many people's eyes by like profiting from other people in the large amount of people uh, being hurt. Um, and I think that there's something to that. So Beery, because it's Blackstone, because everybody was in it, there's a little bit of that going. Uh, yeah. But I, I will say there's plenty of academic research in my personal belief is that I would rather be with a smaller, more niche player in some of these spaces, especially when it comes to things like commercial real estate, where geography uh, matters and having specialized understanding of specific geographies can be really helpful. I know I've worked in the past with a white label product that only focused on commercial real estate um, and net um, net lease options uh, that were Midwest, and they were super boring. But the product was very good and people were very happy with it because it was just so, boring is good. So well known. Boring is good. I got no problem yeah. with boring. Okay, boring so, can be good. Uh, yeah. Some people get really caught up with being able to say that they can offer Carlisle, Blackstone and, you know, Millennium because people know those names and it feels exclusive and special. But quite frankly, I think most of the best players actually fly under the radar. Uh, and they'll never make the headlines. And that's actually a good thing in this space. Totally. So the portfolio models, I understand, you know, Bonrian's helping independent RIAs and advisors, providing them with portfolio models or or structures where they can allocate alts on the, you know, the accredited investor, high net worth, ultra high net worth, but then also, you know, simultaneously kind of in parallel, the the non-accredited investor portfolio model. So are you recommending just allocations or is it all the way down to like individual ETF level? Individual ETF levels. uh, That's exactly what we're doing. Um, We are recommending allocations and then we select product. And then for what we hope to do and kind of our goal is, you know, in this environment uh, with advisors where relationship focus is, is so important to be able to maintain strong bonds with your clients and be able to offer them like a, a very um, unique and uh, specialized experience. I like to be able to do this. And then the secondary thing that we like to do with our advisors is be able to sit down with the clients and work on aligning alternative solutions for value-based investing. So I'll give you a perfect example of what I like to do with advisors. We allow, we have our models to help them scale. And then that allows us to sit down with specific clients and say, Mr. and Mrs. Smith or Mrs. Smith is a single mom. She runs her own business. She has a lot of money. Um, and she is very, very, very passionate about helping women build businesses. 
So we're going to go out and find a microfinance, you know, fund that helps women in Africa build their own businesses. Uh, so we're going to value, help find solutions that align with the values of the clients. Because we're able to scale their book of business, we can offer these kind of things. And we have a suite in our access platform where we focus on having lesser known managers uh, that are operationally efficient enough that they pass our hurdles. And we do due diligence on all of our private funds to get on our platform. Um, but we have a suite of solutions with our strategic partners, which are smaller managers that offer some of this niche opportunity, but also because of our expertise in the space, and I have a team around me, um, my chief investment strategist, Victoria, she has substantial experience in the alternative space, working for the Illinois Treasurer and then working for Allos Ventures. She has tons of experience looking for these kind of things as well. Through our network, we're able to help advisors build out these value-based solutions for their clients and what is important to them. So one of the REAs we work with is very passionate about helping women and minority investors and, and to help uh, promote those communities in ways in order to provide them financing, capital, uh, and help them you know, improve uh, generational wealth possibility. And so they are very passionate about finding managers that align with those beliefs. And we can help them do that because we're able to scale things through our technology and through our strategic partners in our network. I, I love that, you know, uh, even just the willingness to engage with and research emerging managers, right? Because mm -hmm. we can't sit here on the one hand and say too many, everybody invests in BREIT, you know, and then on the other hand say, well, we can't afford to do due diligence on emerging managers. I mean, mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is also, even just from a, a ROI standpoint, in my opinion, it is some of the smaller, maybe we could say smaller and mid-sized managers. And as you mentioned, like with commercial real estate, having a geographic focus, I, I do think a lot of times there's going to be stronger returns kind of mm -hmm. beneath that top level, right? Like when you need to deploy capital a billion dollars at a time, you're frankly, not the, the returns are just not going to be potentially as high is mm -hmm. when you can focus on those more niche opportunities, but you have to have folks who are willing, you know, in sitting in the decision-making seat or in the research seat, who's willing to even look into emerging managers, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And that's kind of where we focus. And the thing is, if I have a client that says to me, no, my customer really wants to be in Blackstone or my client really wants to be in Carlisle or Bain. Mm -hmm. I know people and I can make that call. So it's not a matter of, can I get them access? Because I can. That's actually quite easy. Uh, it's the emerging managers, the smaller manager, the more niche managers, the be more focused where we can better align values uh, that are harder to find. But that's what I've spent the last roughly 10 years of my career doing. Uh, so I have quite the network and I know where to find these things and who to call. And I think that that's more of a value proposition for the average advisor then me saying, well, I can get you in, like you, it's not hard to get into the Blackstone or Carlisle Fund. Now, mind you, sometimes the access platforms can offer you lower minimums. That's absolutely true. Um, but it's not hard to get in those funds if you know the right person to call. Yep. Now I was on, speaking of, you know, emerging managers, emerging leaders, I was on your website. I went to the About Us webpage. Mm -hmm. And if I saw correctly, you have an all-female team. Is that the case? 
We do. We do have an all-female team. So that's really unique in this industry. Can you tell Mm -hmm. us more about that experience in building and leading an all-female team? Sure. So I'm very passionate about helping women in finance um, through mentorship as well as, you know, through financial literacy programs. So I've been a member of um, Investing Girls, where I serve as a mentor for young girls in high school to help them, you know, understand potential career opportunities, career paths in this field, offer internships and opportunities to kind of shadow what I do and uh, find opportunities with people that I know for them to get to know the industry. Uh, I did something similar with Rock the Street, Wall Street over the years. And so that's always been something I've been very passionate about through the financial literacy program. So I also uh, co-chair of the Women in ETF Speakers Bureau and the Women in ETF Speakers Bureau and Women in ETF in general. uh, Their key mission is to bring more women into senior roles um, in in investing and, and things of that nature in the industry and to have better representation. Speakers Bureau's goal is to have better representation of women on main stage at major conferences. I've worked with Choir, uh, which is a, another organization that has a similar uh, goal is to improve minority and, and women um, representation in the industry. And, and a lot of people don't realize finance in general in terms of male-dominated STEM-like fields, actually has better representation than most. Uh, it's still not great, but it is better than most. And and we, as an industry, have actually spent a lot of time committing to this. And I think that that's a good thing. Uh, but for me, because I've been a mentor over the years to so many women, and because this is such a passion for me, when I was building my firm and I was thinking of who I wanted to hire, when you're or starting a new firm, you know, you want the people you hire to be kind of your right hand, to be people you can trust implicitly, like, because they're going to have to do a lot for you. And you need to know that, like, they're not going to stab you in the back. You're not going to have to spend a lot of time, you know, teaching people and getting them up to speed. So when I was looking to build my team, I focused on the people that I had those kind of relationships with, which happened to be young females. And so uh, Victoria Bills and I worked together at Ariel Investments a million years ago. She had just graduated from college and I was sort of assigned to be her mentor there. And so I, I, you know, I went from being her mentor to us becoming actually close friends. And I, I helped advise her through her journey as, you know, with the Illinois Treasurer's Department and with Allos. And so when I started the firm, she was a free agent and I was like, you need to come work for me. I don't know how I'm going to make it happen, but you have to come work for me because I can't imagine doing this with anybody but you. And then Brittany Mason is a friend of mine who I've known for a very long time. Uh, We have an Irish connection. She lived in Ireland for a long time. She ran the Miss Universe Ireland uh, uh, organization, um, which is actually an extremely operationally intensive and quite frankly, difficult type of business to run because your entire ability to build and grow and be profitable in that business is your ability to recruit contestants and recruit sponsors, getting people to give you stuff for free. And, uh, and, and that is extremely intensive. You have to have, it takes a special person to, to be able to do that successfully. She did it extremely successfully. She wanted to get into finance. She was working in the mortgage business for Rocket Mortgage and she was kicking butt. She was the top performing female broker in her region. Um, and But she wanted to get into something that wasn't mortgages. Um, and so when I had the opportunity to bring somebody on to handle kind of administrative business development and marketing, she's the first person that came to mind. Again, somebody I could really trust. 
And so it was a concerted effort for me to focus on women who I know could uh, be trusted partners for me and want to commit to build the business. Mm -hmm. But I also think that there's something powerful about having three younger women out there doing something as complicated as alternative as experts. And, and we don't apologize for being women. Like we, we are very proud to be a full female team. And that's not to say we won't add men to the business. I know we will. Uh, but I think starting off and kicking off with this focus is really important to me and, and something I'm super passionate about. I love it. I love the positive energy. I mean, from my standpoint, you know, the, the kind of corporate top-down ESG stuff is not for me. Like I can't stand any of that stuff, but on the other hand, I see so many, you know, female entrepreneurs and like your team, all female team, it, it's more bottom up, you know, mm -hmm. grassroots and talking about, you know, clients who want to invest with certain types of, you know, objectives, social goals, impact and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I love, I hate it when it's top down, I'm not going to lie, but I love it when it's bottom up, you know, like folks like you who are building the team that you want to build, serving the clients that you want to serve. Uh, I think that's wonderful. And I just, I really appreciate your energy. Uh, I can definitely see why you've been named the queen of alternatives. Uh, <laughs> I think that's well-deserved. I know some other women that we've had on the show who are very high up there, but you know, like we've had Kelly Winget and I'm like, well, she's the wealth alpha. So, you know, she can be the wealth alpha. You're the queen of alternatives. I, I, I love it. Um, and that being said, we have a lot of advisors in our listenership. I'm sure many of them might be interested in the services you provide at Bonry and Capital Management. So where can they go to learn more about your firm and the service offerings? Sure. So they can go to our website, bonryandcapital.com. Uh, it has a summary of some of our services. I also encourage you to reach out to me. Um, you know, my first name, Shana at bonryandcapital.com. I don't mind giving out my email address. If you have any questions or concerns, I'm happy to hop on a call and kind of walk you through everything. I always try to do a demo of our tech portal for anybody who's interested, because I really think, you know, that's kind of, in addition to all the things we've talked about, about how we're kind of doing things differently, our tech portal is sort of a, um, it has that TAMP feeling, but it also has a social media feeling. Um, it's a nice little ecosystem where everything can exist in a way that's really easy to communicate with our clients and also allows our clients to have access to things they would never have access to through their traditional offerings of technology in their tech stack. Things like being able to do analytical work where you're shorting and using leverage, being able to screen databases of hedge funds and uh, you know alternative product. Uh, we have data sources uh, where we screen for that kind of thing. Um, and then we have our, our access platform there where you can see our managers and, and get more information, uh, see their research and and everything's kind of in there. And, and um, you know, I, I like to be able to show you that, uh, show potential clients that. And there's also a test drive function on our website if you just want to take a quick peek as well. Um, so that's how you can find us. Go to our website, email me. I'm happy to set up a quick call, walk you through a demo and see if there's ways that we can help you and your clients. I really think that the services we're offering are scalable because of technology, but we're able to offer a really white glove experience um, where we can be your trusted technical expert to make your lives easier with your clients because we hear time and time again from advisors that the number one reason that they're not in this space is what we talked about in the beginning. I don't want to invest in something I don't understand, but this is a value. This is a way to set yourself apart from your general competition. And we want to be that partner that helps you get educated yourselves 
but serves as that technical expert along the way. I love it. Uh, Shana, I love your energy and just willingness to share your knowledge freely. And I'll be sure to link to all of those resources and your website and our show notes as well. Uh, so listeners can easily get in touch with you. And thanks again for joining the show today. Thank you. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.